Preventing the Next Bombing, today, Thursday, May 9th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Boston's police chief tells Congress that security needs to be stepped up, but in a smart way. So there has to be real attention paid to who's in our community and what are we doing to talk to them. And this expert says security needs to improve fast before the 4th of July holiday. We need to figure out uh, quickly how we're going to make that safer first so that communities still come out and celebrate, because in the end, that's what we want them to do. We'll also hear from the father of one of the Kazakh students charged with obstructing the Boston probe. And later, Scottish managers dominate English soccer, and their impossible accent isn't a problem at all. They can tell you what they mean by raising one eyebrow. It's a very Scottish thing. It's written all over our face. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of WomenHeart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. This is The World. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill held their first hearing today on the Boston Marathon bombings. The House Homeland Security Committee began hearing testimony less than three weeks after the attacks. Former Homeland Security official Julia Kayyem says today's hearings showcased a familiar problem among security agencies. The headline is clearly total lack of knowledge, complete ignorance by the local and state folks about uh, the FBI's concerns, as well as Russia's concerns that were related through the FBI and CIA. I mean, uh, there are entities in place which exist so that that information can be shared. So it seems clear that at least in terms of preventing the attack, there was a communication breakdown. Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis was among those who testified today before the House committee. He confirmed that he was not briefed about Russia's concerns about one of the alleged bombers ahead of the attacks last month. Later in his testimony, he highlighted other ways to prevent future attacks, such as reaching out to immigrant communities before a crisis happens. We have developed information, not through infiltration, but through appealing to their sense of community and nation. You can't develop a relationship with someone in a crisis. It has to be developed before the crisis. And so there has to be real attention paid to who's in our community and what are we doing to talk to them. We do that through outreach classes, but we're also having great luck with social media recently. Juliet Kayam agrees that creating a new model of community policing that gains the confidence of all citizens, including immigrants, could be a key to preventing another attack. What we know now, after 30 or 40 years of uh, community policing in urban environments, it is that integration, uh, that sense of outreach, is really how uh, you're going to get information from communities. People are going to feel empowered to come forward. Look, we have an issue here, which is there are clearly people within the communities here, neighbors, friends, the mosque, that knew something was up. Now, whether that, that should justify them saying, hey, police, look look into the older brother, you know, we don't know. But that kind of outreach with communities that feel empowered by the police is exactly how, after the race riots in the 60s and 70s, this is how, how urban police departments changed. And so I think it's important people see terrorism is different in many respects, but a lot of the lessons we've learned in the past actually uh, can help us with the kind of outreach that, that Commissioner Davis and others know is true and will eventually work. 
Do you think there's anything that could have been different uh, in, in Boston? You could imagine a scenario in which uh, community members and friends and neighbors told local police uh, about Snarinev and, and what was going on. And the FBI tells the local police, wait, the, the Russians have talked about him as well. And maybe Eureka, we, we could have stopped this. It's, it's a lot of ifs. I think we need to play them out and figure out, you know, could that have happened? So I think looking at the JTTF and uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force and sort of figuring out why did that breakdown occur and, and how do we fix it is important simply because we're investing a lot of these. If they're not in these, if they're not working, let's get a system that is going to work. And then finally, Commissioner Davis did not say this explicitly because he's a good police chief, but there are two models of uh, counterterrorism uh, within local and urban police departments. They are uh, the sort of more heavy-handed NYPD approach, which you know we saw play out in the last couple years with this demographics unit where they were looking in and infiltrating mosques. And then what what Commissioner Davis described, which is uh, more integration, that outreach, something that I think is actually representative of the community that we live in here in Massachusetts. Those are two different models. Neither is perfect. Uh, terrorism is going to happen under both watches. But it was an interesting dynamic about at least, you know, Commissioner Davis putting his vote on the integration side of this is how we're really going to solve this problem. It's not an epidemic, but it is a problem of uh, domestic or homegrown violent extremism. What exactly could friends and neighbors, people at the mosque, what could they have done exactly? See something, say something, starts to get kind of onerous at some point. Yes, I think that's right. And And that would be you know, if I could guide any review of this, that would be my question is, is really what were the dynamics going on in the mosque and the community that might have at least triggered uh, some concern about potential radicalization? And were there mechanisms by which the mosque or other community members would have felt uh, comfortable going to either the Cambridge police where the mosque is or the Boston police. In Boston, in Massachusetts, there is a mechanism. It's called Bridges. It's a long acronym in which immigrant communities, religious communities in particular, Islamic communities and others uh, meet with local and state uh, law enforcement. And uh, people should feel empowered by that mechanism. And it, it sounds like either there wasn't enough on the brother to get anyone worried or that the community didn't feel confident about the information. And that's, you know, unfortunately, this isn't easy. I mean, I know everyone's saying, well, if only we had done this or that. I mean, this stuff is hard because at some stage, you don't want an East German circa 1980 society. You want people to be able to pray and be together in an open democratic society without everyone pointing fingers at each other. This is just simply not easy. And each time, hopefully, we'll get better from the lessons we'll learn from what happened out of Boston. That was Juliet Kayyem, former counterterrorism official in the Obama administration, now a columnist for the Boston Globe. Now, as you'll recall, the surviving Boston bombing suspect, Jokart Sarnayev, was a student at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. Three of his former classmates there were arrested on charges of obstructing the investigation. One of them is Azamat Tajayakov. He's one of the two students from Kazakhstan accused of trying to dispose of Sarnayev's backpack and laptop once they realized their friend was a wanted suspect. Azamat Tajayakov now sits in a federal prison, and his father has traveled from Kazakhstan to Boston to help his son. The world's Andrea Crossan spoke to the father, Amir Ismagulov. Andrea, first of all, what did Mr. Ismagulov tell you about his son and the charges facing him? 
He has had very little contact with his son since he arrived in Boston on April 25th, but he was adamant that he believed his son was innocent and that he had no connection to the charges that he's facing. And obviously it's not surprising that his father is supporting him and vigorously defending him. If convicted, Azmat Tajayakov faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison. So I sat down with him and had a discussion about his son, and through a translator he told me what his son told him about the day of his arrest. He says that he's in shock. When he was first arrested, he was he was just in total shock. He said that he was innocent and doesn't understand why he's being arrested. And now he said that it took him two days to just kind of come out of the total shock. And um, now he's just he still doesn't quite understand because he thinks he's innocent. What's been the reaction inside Kazakhstan, in your home country, over the arrest of your son and his friend? Сейчас в телевизорах у нас выступают все друзья Азамата. All his friends are speaking out right now in Kazakhstan, speaking to the media, saying that uh, they don't believe that he can possibly be guilty of any of this, uh, that he's not, he has no connection to any kind of, uh, well, he has no connection to Islam himself. He, he respects the religion, but, but doesn't know a word of the Quran, and that he has no connection to uh, the jihad or any kind of uh, radical movements. If there's one thing that you could tell people now about your son because obviously there are people in Boston and in the United States who believe that your son may have done something to help one of the suspected bombers. What would you want them to know about your son? I he says that he would like the people of Boston to think of his son in the same way that they think of their friends and acquaintances, that he's a very calm, intelligent person and that he would never hurt anyone. He never knew, that he didn't know anything about the Tsarnaevs and that had he known that they would do anything like that, he would never even let them inside his house. Do you ever consider the possibility that your son made a mistake and that he thought he was helping a friend? He asked his son uh, about this, and his son said that had they, uh, had they really wanted to help, uh, that there's a lot more that they you know, probably could have done. They could have destroyed the laptop. They could have just done other things somehow, but that's not what was going through their minds. Thank you very much for your time. He thanks you for the interview and uh, wants to uh, ask you to provide good and truthful information to the people of Boston um, and to America to let them know that his son uh, loves America, that he sent his son to get an education here uh, so that he could see with his own eyes what true democracy looks like and that um, he hopes that the people in this country can believe him and believe that this was just a mistake.
Andrea, we'd expect Mr. Ismagulov to defend his son, but he's trying to make a point, it seems, that his son's loyalty is with the U.S. and not with Jokart Tsarnaev or anyone who'd want to target the U.S. It felt very much to me like Ismagulov was trying to express a feeling of solidarity with Bostonians. He told me that he'd been taking flowers to the makeshift memorial site near where the bombings happened. And he explained that he wanted to do this, and his son wanted him to do this for him because his son was just like everyone else, and he was concerned with the innocent people who'd been injured and the families of those who'd been killed. And also, Marco, just to give you some context for this interview, Ismagulov insisted that I meet him in Boston Common. He said that he wanted to meet me at this spot because it was so significant to American history. Mm. Now, his son, uh, Azamat, is still in jail. What's next? At this point, Tazyakov's next court date is May 14th. His father intends to stay in Boston to support his son through this process. He says he can't leave and go back to Kazakhstan until his son is free. And just before our meeting ended, he showed me on his iPhone pictures of Azmat with his siblings and pictures of him with his mother. And he pointed to the photo and said to me that I should be able to just look at him and know that he was innocent. The world's Andrea Crossan. Thank you, and thanks to Vera Koshkina for the translation. Before we take a break, we want to remember one of Jamaica's musical greats, Cedric M. Brooks. He died last week at the age of 70. A few years back, I traveled to Kingston, Jamaica, to report on the famous Alpha Boys School and Orphanage. Cedric M. Brooks was a student there, entering the school when he was 11. Under the tutelage of Sister Mary Ignatius, who played saxophone herself, Cedric M. Brooks became a great sax man. Thanks to my own brief education in Jamaican music and the few days I spent at the Alpha Boys School, I got to know the work of Cedric M. Brooks a lot better. Musically, he stands right up there with Bob Marley. But as Brooks once told a music journalist, I always wanted to do the jazz situation. So here he is from what I think is his best work with his 1974 group, The Light of Saba, from the album by the same name. Sound of the late great Cedric Imbrooks. This is the world from PRI Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. One of the planet's most popular soccer teams has a new manager. Today, Manchester United announced who will succeed Sir Alex Ferguson, the legendary coach who announced his retirement this week after 26-plus years on the job. And like Ferguson, the new manager is a Scot from Glasgow. David Moyes is his name. Several Scottish managers have made their fortunes in England, leading big teams in the top-rated English Premier League. What's curious is how many of them are from working-class sections of Glasgow. Here's what the Manchester United manager David Moyes once had to say about growing up in his hometown. No, you had to look after yourself in Glasgow, and that didn't mean that you had to be the best fighter or anything. It just meant that you had to look after yourself, you know, whether that was you were sharp with your tongue or whether it meant that you were a good runner to run away from people or whether it meant that you know, you could handle yourself, but I think in Glasgow, uh, 
probably known as being Gallus, I think, in Glasgow. You know, I think you had to have a bit of that about you. Being Gallus? I need some translation here. Fortunately, Glaswegian comedian Janie Godley's on the line to help me out. Janie, what is being Gallus all about? Being Gallus is Glasgow. It's very much a Celtic word. It means having a lot of strength and being up there with the best. If you're Gallus, you can face a crowd. You can you could face an execution with a smile. <laughs> strength, but not swagger, I assume. Well, I suppose swagger is another good way. But no, gallusness is actually having grit and determination. That That's what gallus means. And I suppose it's a bit of swagger mixed in. And is Moyes right? Is that what it takes to survive and thrive in Glasgow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to remember uh, Ferguson, all the famous Glaswegian uh, soccer, as you call it, managers, We're all born into poverty, not privilege. And a sense of poverty makes you strive to prove your worth, especially from a Glaswegian. And Ferguson's driving force came from a determined streak to beat Liverpool. And and it's a sense of tenacity that comes from poverty. Uh, And I know because I was born into abject poverty as well. And we have this thing where nothing but nobody and nowhere will get us down. I want to ask you about your own background in a sec, but I mean, what is going on here all over England? You've got soccer stars who speak little English from all over the globe. But when it comes to the managers of the teams, I mean, Scotland seems to dominate. What's up with that? I think what it is is the Scots and the Glaswegians are very good at being patriarchal and they use mutual respect as a psychological tool of instilling family values. You never offend your parents. You just eternally disappoint them. So I think the Scottish managers set up their teams as a patriarchal family and they will defend and love their family and their family love them back to the bitter end. And that's very, very endemic of Scottish managers. But I mean, even if you're a a strong-handed father figure, I mean, how do the foreign players understand what the Scots are saying? Uh, No offense, I understand most of what you're saying. I (laughs) understand. Yeah, I understand that our accent, you know, is, is... can be difficult, but the accent is stunning, strong and decisive. Our Scottish accent and language is sung, spoken and quoted throughout the globe, whether it's you guys singing Auld Lang Syne at the New Year or quoting Burns. But we have a great way of expressing ourselves if you don't get our accent. I mean, I did comedy in Cambridge, in Boston not long ago, and those guys loved it. And it's a Scottish thing where the foreign players... You've got to remember, they're striving for for themselves to be understood. But, you know, you just have to look at Alex Ferguson's face, Busby's face, Jock Steen, the whole lot of them. They can tell you what they mean by raising one eyebrow. It's a very Scottish thing. It's written all over our face. Uh, That would be quoting Burns, not buns like hot cross buns, right? No, Burns. Burns. <laughs> Don't get cakes in our national poet mixed up. You'll get some really nasty letters from people with one eyebrow raised. Yeah. Now, you uh, you grew up in a working class Glasgow neighborhood, as you said. Give, give us a, a sense of what that was like. I came from a very poverty-ridden family in the East End of Glasgow. You've got to remember, even in this present day, in the East End of Glasgow, the life expectancy is 55. In Fallujah, Iraq, it's 65. So I have relatives saving up to go to a war zone to get 10 years on their life. We come from a place where poverty was part and parcel of growing up, and nobody was rich. Everybody was pretty poor. Um, And as a comedian... It's a wonderful breeding ground. You know, you've got to remember the Scots were the first to go and fight the Spanish Civil War from Britain. And most of them came from poverty-ridden streets. They've got a deep sense of right. And and that's who we are. Our roots help us 
push ourselves into the future. So, uh, Janie, back to Manchester United. Uh, do you think David mm-hmm. Moyes has enough Glaswegian moxie to measure up to uh, Sir Alex Ferguson? I don't think anybody has the moxie to measure up to Ferguson. He was a one-off, a global leader in soccer. And as my wee daddy, who's 82, said today, he's done the best job in the world. It's time to take his shoes off, stick them in the Dumbarton River and have a wee paddle about. That's what he needs to do now. But he, he did the best. Nobody, you can't measure up to the man. But I think David Moyes is going to make a great manager. As the whole Premier League of England is flooded by my fellow Glaswegians, I'm very proud of them. If only comedy had had as many Scottish women in it as Scottish men in the Premier Hmm. League, I would be happier. Glaswegian comedian Janie Godley, great to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. And you can hear more Scottish, English, and all manner of other accents in our podcast, The World in Words. Just go to theworld.org slash language. And on that subject, later in the program, hackers from around the world are improving their linguistic skills, which means you may be more likely to be duped by those emails phishing for your bank account details. That's coming up later here on PRI's The World. And here's another interesting tidbit we spotted today. What's wrong? I felt a great disturbance in the force. Yes, it's true, Obi-Wan. Unusual results from the census. There are. That's Canadian television, so you know we're not making this up. Figures just released from Canada's 2011 census show a precipitous drop in the number of Jedi Knights. According to Stats Canada, 9,000 Canadians follow the Jedi Knight religion. That's down from a peak of around 20,000 back in 2001. Canadians started to declare themselves as Jedi Knights as a joke to protest the religion question on the census form. But according to the would-be religion's founder, Jediism isn't a joke anymore. <laughs> Laugh it up, fuzzball. No, that's not him. But someone who goes by the adopted Jedi name of Mahavadra was quoted by the Canadian press recently. He said Jedi Knights actually do study the philosophies exhibited by Jedi characters in the Star Wars movies, largely Buddhist and Taoist virtues like responsibility, compassion, and forgiveness. And there are self-declared Jedi Knights in lots of places, by the way, about 15,000 in the Czech Republic, 65,000 in Australia, and more than 176,000 in England and Wales. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how 19th century Britain's appetite for empire fueled its unbridled enthusiasm for flowers. These are appearing in the press with lots and lots of fanfare, and everybody's getting excited about the petunia. I mean, there's nothing more more amazing than, than, than this petunia or the begonia. We'll hear about one exotic flower that really grabbed the British imagination. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This week, the Pentagon released a report that openly linked the Chinese military to cyber espionage of U.S. businesses and government sites. 
Big news, but not all that surprising. Hacking is a growing phenomenon around the globe. What's more interesting is how hackers in China and many other countries are growing more sophisticated. For example, it used to be that you could spot a hacker from the bad grammar he or she used when writing you a suspicious email. That's not necessarily the case anymore. The world's Nina Porzuki has our story. It happens to all of us. You get an email from a friend with a suspicious-looking link. You know you shouldn't open it, but the subject is just too enticing. It's something like, "Wow, you won't believe what this guy is saying about you online." And it was an address. It was just a URL. That's the Chinese linguist David Moser, and yes, he clicked the link. Kablooey! <laughs> I, I had given away the game to, into cyberspace, and then people started saying, "Are you being hacked? What's going on here?" Moser was the victim of a phishing scam. When a hacker reels you in with a clever line and then hooks you with a link to click and download spyware onto your computer, phishing is a part of how Chinese hackers get inside government computers. Or if you remember back a few months ago, how they hacked into the New York Times. And according to the cybersecurity company Mandiant, hired to investigate the New York Times hacking, one important tool these hackers are now employing is good English. Moser says it's a sign of the times. We know there are at least 300 million people in China learning English right now. 300 million—that's the population of the United States. So I mean, there's got to be lots and lots of people that are very good at simulating, you know, slangy English. It's true. These scams have gotten a lot more sophisticated, says Andrew Howard. You can't pull a fast one on Howard. I know a lot about phishing. Howard studies the effectiveness of phishing at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. He does it by writing his own phishing emails. He calls this ethical phishing because he measures how many people will click on the link. You know, in my experience, even a really poorly crafted email, something that I wrote, you know, very quickly, didn't take a lot of time to make sure that it was targeted to who I was sending to.、Um, you know, we see click rates in the 20 to 25 percent rate、wow. in a lot of organizations. I、that's... mean, that is unbelievable, right? Yeah, that's incredible.、Uh, Yes, even those ridiculously worded emails from your long-lost friend in Nigeria, who has a bank account full of money to transfer to you, if you'll only release your account. Yes, even those emails pay off. So imagine, says Howard, when you add better language skills to the mix. I've been using, you know, online translation services for a long time just to read the internet, and those services have gotten better. So I mean, that's part of the reason you see better written emails. But it goes beyond language. According to Peter Cassidy, who heads the anti-phishing working group, which monitors phishing scams around the world, the scammers are tapping into deep cultural mores. The culture matters. What will affect the culture will inform the stories that they try to tell. Which means that in Japan, for example, Cassidy says, what gets people to click is blackmail. In Japan, they have different kinds of blackmail. Where you know they'll send emails to people saying, "We saw you looking at the bad things on the internet." To keep wife in the dark, send fifty bucks. And what gets Americans? Seventy-two hours before Katrina actually made landfall, the first Katrina phishing charity websites were established. And I think generosity is the the calling card phishing attack for the Americans. So, what about the country we are fixated on at the moment, China? Yes, there's evidence that Chinese are hacking U.S. corporations and government agencies, but the run-of-the-mill Chinese cyber scammer is not wasting their time using Google Translate on American consumers, but scamming in their native tongue—a lucrative venture, it seems, as more and more Chinese are buying and selling online. China's place has gotten rich very quickly. 
fantastically wealthy almost overnight in like the past 10 or 15 years. They're relatively newly wealthy. Their parents might not have had much in the way of technology, suddenly have an enormously powerful computer and the internet and everything that's out there. And oh boy, it's fun. Fun that is until, well, your computer gets infected, which according to Cassidy, more than half of Chinese computers are already. That, he says, is just the price of prosperity. For the world, I'm Nina Porzuki. For those of you with green thumbs, you'll dig this geo-quiz. We're on a quest to discover a flower. We start by going back in time to 1837. Place yourself in South America in what was then called British Guyana. We're in a boat sailing along the backwaters of one of the world's largest rivers. As we're paddling along, we come across these huge flowers growing in the still river basins. The leaves are huge and circular, strong enough to support the weight of a small child, in fact. They can extend to five, even seven feet across. The flowers are about 18 inches and usually white or bright pink. They smell like pineapples. Mmm, lovely. The original 19th century scientific name for this flower was Victoria Regia in honor of Queen Victoria, and it became a symbol of the British Empire. So, can you name the flower? We'll trace its journey from South America to England in a few minutes. Now, there's no question that having your first child changes your life, big time. Any new parent can tell you that. But when the new parents are foreign correspondents accustomed to living precariously, sometimes in war zones, well, the challenges of becoming a parent can be a bit more challenging. Borzu Daragahi of the Financial Times wrote about this recently. He and his wife are caring for their 14-month-old daughter, Samara, in Cairo, where they're now based. And for Borzu, this is what his new life feels like. Life has changed since I've become a father living in Cairo after more than a decade working as a correspondent in the Middle East. There used to be a time when I'd ask my friends coming to visit from abroad to buy me a couple of bottles of premium liquor from the duty-free or a few hundred grams of chevre or comte cheese from the fromagerie. Now, I ask them to pick up some high-quality Western-made pampers or, when there's a shortage, some baby formula. Aptamil is my new single malt. Okay, Borzu Dargahi, baby formula is your new single malt. Uh, I, I trust you take it neat. <laughs> no, straight up on the rocks, exactly. It kind of says it all. I mean, what else is missing from the regular baby gear parents would easily come by in the U.S. or Europe, for example, there in Cairo? You mentioned diapers. Well, I mean, there's diapers. They're just not high quality. I mean, you have uh, a lot of the Western products here, and they're sometimes even made here, but they're not up to the standards that we're used to. You know, you once had a root canal performed in Baghdad with a dentist having to leave you in the chair to turn on the power generator a couple of times. How does it feel for you after a decade of covering the Middle East as a child-free reporter to be having these concerns now about, you know, where she's going to school and what you're going to do to protect her, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's very different. Uh, uh, when I was just a, a correspondent or just it was just me and my wife, she's also a journalist. It did not bother us to be living uh, sort of deprived lives. You know, I, I remember spending weeks in, in places like Afghanistan and just like living off of cans of tuna and bottled water and, you know, getting sick and just sort of fighting through very tough circumstances. But with a baby 
baby, it's very different. And the same sorts of things that you're willing to put yourself through, it doesn't feel right putting your child through. But it also shows just, uh, you know, how hard it is for ordinary people here. And, you know, I, for the first time, I think, in my career, I, I sort of uh, feel the sting of what it's like to be living in a country where the state is collapsing, the systems of accountability are collapsing. You know, you, you describe some pretty yuppie restaurants in, in Cairo, health clubs, even a large country club that sprung up. What happened to all the dire assessments of the Egyptian economy right after the 2011 uprising there? Surely there's still a large, poor population in Cairo. Absolutely. This is actually, you know, I work for the Financial Times, and this is one of the things that we're examining in microscopic detail, the, the slow collapse of the Egyptian economy. But there is still a lot of money sloshing around in a country like Egypt. Uh, you got to consider it's uh, 84 million people. Even if 10% of the people are well off, that's still 8.4 million people. There is a, quite a bit of wealth here. It's just not very uh, well distributed. You know, after all the reports of unrest during the Arab Spring, it struck me in your story that you feel more safe in Cairo than you do in your home of Chicago. Yeah, no, I mean, just in terms of looking at crime statistics, even though crime has tripled in Egypt since the revolution, it still remains safer than many Western cities and, and a lot of comparable developing world cities. So, you know, even though the rate is not going in the right direction, you know, the homicide rate, I believe, is still lower than the, the homicide rate in Chicago. So back to your daughter. She's 14 months old now. Uh, she's growing up in Cairo. Pollution and medical care are some of your big concerns. But at 14 months of age, what's her favorite Egyptian thing to eat? I mean, she loves rice, which is popular here in, in Egypt. But she has a real fondness for another staple of North Africa, couscous. And she just loves it. When you put it in front of her, she starts uh, laughing and immediately uh, demanding to eat it, uh, sometimes with her own hand. Borzu Daragahi of the Financial Times in Cairo. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Back to the South American beauty that captured the imagination of Victorian England more than a century ago. We're talking about a flower now, a giant Amazon water lily, which is the answer to our geo-quiz. Tatiana Holway has written about how this flower found its way from its native Guyana to the heart of the British Empire during Queen Victoria's reign. Holway's book is called The Flower of Empire. Here is the author's description of the flower itself. It's a vast plant that grows in still river basins in the Amazon uh, and actually all over South America. The leaves are, it's a water lily, and, and the leaves are five feet across at least, sometimes six, sometimes even seven. And that's what you mean um, by vast. It is a big, big, big lily. Yeah. Big, big, big lily. And the flower is about 18 inches when it blooms, and it blooms in first in white and then in shades of pink, darker and darker and darker, and has a beautiful smell of pineapples, very rich. Now, we've got pictures of the Amazonian water lily, uh, Victoria Regia, at our website, theworld.org. If we take ourselves back to the mid-19th century, um, no one in England had seen a flower quite like this. It was discovered by German naturalist Robert Schomburg, who was on an expedition for the Royal Geographical Society. And let's be clear, this is a scientific expedition, but it's also about empire building too, right? Absolutely. Guyana is where, where the British Empire began in some ways. Uh, that's where Raleigh went looking for El Dorado. And, of course, he didn't find it, but he came back with such stories of, of the riches of this new world that Britain wanted to, to get a hold of it. Uh, so the Royal Geographical Society, which actually started as the Raleigh Club, asked this guy, Robert Schomburg, who was a surveyor and was based near there, to go map Terra Incognita. And it was just by chance that he stumbled on this flower. And then a, a picture of it kind of takes off in Victorian England. It wasn't just taking off. I mean, the 
whole country went gaga for it. They sure did. And it was a matter of just perfect timing, all the conditions coming together for a perfect storm. First of all, in Britain already, flowers were were a craze. And at the same time that Britain is expanding its empire and expanding its explorations, it's also discovering new flowers all the time. And so these are appearing in the press with lots and lots of fanfare, and everybody's getting excited about the petunia. I mean, mm. there's nothing more, more <laughs> amazing than, than, than this petunia or the begonia. Um, so already the conditions are promising for a flower like this. Add the fact that of where it was discovered, Guiana, and then the timing. That's the key. This was 1837. It was discovered when Victoria was a princess still. And in the six weeks between the time that the news of the discovery left Guiana and arrived in London, Victoria had become queen. Then they discover it's a new genus. Then they call it Victoria Regia. And there we are, the perfect storm. Now, there's another beat to this story, which is really interesting. Um, This flower, Victoria Regia, actually prompted the construction of Crystal Palace in London. This is 1851. It was all glass. Um, It was the largest building ever built. Uh, It was 18 acres. It was built for the Great Exhibition of Industry of 1851. And it was temporary. It was taken down after a year. And the design was based on the structure of the leaf of the water lily. Ex- explain that. I mean, how do you take a, <laughs> this kind of thing that grows in nature and it, it becomes kind of the, the, the basis for a building? Uh, well, as the architect himself put it, Joseph Paxton, nature was the engineer. Um, that's a bit of an oversimplification. But he is also the one who brought the lily to bloom for the first time in Britain. And having done so, The lily was getting bigger and bigger under his care, so he built for Victoria Regia a special new Victoria Regia house. And he had a breakthrough in design based on on the lily leaf, which can support quite a bit of weight Mm. on the water. Uh, So thinking along those lines, he figured out a way to have a roof, a wide horizontal expanse with minimal vertical supports. And that was the big design breakthrough in this lily house, which was quite small. But when it came to the Crystal Palace, it was just many, many, many of those lily houses all joined together. So you you see then, you must see a, a direct link between the discovery of this flower, the enthusiasm in England for it, and then kind of, I mean, buildings that have gone up here in the United States, glass buildings, this whole kind of architectural kind of fad, really, that's been going on since the 50s. Absolutely. And and even before, museums, malls, all those things, they all, they all come from the Crystal Palace in many ways. Um, so if you follow the line of reasoning that the Crystal Palace arose from the water lily and that modernity, in a way, arose from the Crystal Palace, then you can kind of say that modernity started in a swamp. That's incredible. <laughs> Tatiana Holway's new book is The Flower of Empire, an Amazonian water lily, the quest to make it bloom in the world it created. Again, you can view a slideshow at theworld.org. Tatiana, great to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We also have a very neat time-lapse video of a blooming Amazon water lily at our website. It's from the popular BBC Nature series, The Private Life of Plants, narrated by David Attenborough. Again, that's at theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Pope Francis has gotten rave reviews from the faithful since taking over the Catholic Church almost two months ago. He's regarded as much warmer and humbler than his predecessor, but he's not immune to controversy, as the Vatican may be finding out this week. Yesterday, Francis told an audience of some 800 nuns that they should engage in a fertile chastity and generate spiritual children in the church. The nuns should be like mothers, said the pontiff, not like spinsters or old maids, depending on the translation. That last thought got a laugh from the nuns in the audience. But Dr. Lavinia Byrne is not laughing. She's a former nun and also a theologian and commentator on women in the Catholic Church. Dr. Byrne, what were your impressions of the Pope's comments saying nuns should avoid being spiritual spinsters? I do wish he'd had a proper briefing with some senior nuns because that kind of language is so old-fashioned and so inappropriate nowadays. Nobody wants to be called a spinster and nobody really wants to be considered uniquely in terms of their fertility. After all, there are lots of married women who don't have children either. I mean, the Pope also stressed obedience and said that uh, nuns should have an attitude of adoration and service. Was was this a rebuke to nuns, and particularly nuns in the U.S. who've been calling on the Church to allow women a more prominent role in, in the Church? I think so. What I, I fear, frankly, is that his reticence is that he's not looking at the issue of what really should be looked at, which is the place of women in general in the church and the aspirations some women have to be ordained. We cannot go on living in the medieval period. So if you had a chance, uh, Dr. Byrne, to sit down with Pope Francis in a little one-to-one, what advice would you give him at this point? I'd say to him, please, please consider what the church has done for women. It's changed their aspirations by saying to them, you have the right to be well-educated. You have the right to have opinions. So please take our education and our opinions seriously and don't go on punishing women for a sin they never committed. Ordain them, for God's sake. Former nun and now theologian and still a practicing Catholic, Dr. Lavinia Byrne, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. There's a video doing the rounds online. It's a short animated film called Maker vs. Marker. On the left side of the screen, there's a human hand. On the right, there's this little warrior drawn in marker. They do battle. It's a lot of fun, and it's got a great soundtrack. The composer is Brian Sadler, and it turns out he's a musician with the U.S. Navy. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. About half an hour south of Tokyo, there's a place called Yokosuka. It's where Brian Sadler's been living for almost three years. And uh, we're just situated on this little bay that's here, and there's an American Navy base that's here. Sadler plays trombone for a living. He's a musician second class for the Navy, stationed as part of the 7th Fleet Band. The band puts on concerts for all kinds of events. Military ceremonies, public concerts... Uh, retirement ceremonies. And not just around the base in Japan, Brian Sadler's been all over the region, to Hong Kong, China, Malaysia and Vietnam, even Australia. And when they travel, the Navy musicians mix up the repertoire. Like when we go to Indonesia, we'll play a few of their local hits. 
at the time, or maybe a classic Indonesian song or something like that. But Sadler's main thing, the thing he really loves, is writing music. It used to be trombone came first, and then I would do this as a hobby. But now this comes first. It's what I enjoy doing. Trombone, even though I'm getting paid by the Navy, uh, it's kind of taken the back seat to this. This piece is called Action Brass. It's not your normal military fare. Put it on your iPod, and you're the star of your own Hollywood thriller. I just was listening to soundtracks and film scores when I was a kid, and I just loved it because it was like classical music, except a lot more exciting. Brian Sadler composed this music from a secret underwater lair in the Sea of Japan. It's codenamed Gold Trombona. That's not true. He composes everything on his laptop. Sadler uses a music notation program that plays the score through a library of sampled instruments. Sometimes, like here with Action Brass, he gets the Seventh Fleet Band to play it too. And they like it because they just—it's fun for them to play. And that's mainly how I got started writing this kind of music because it was fun to play, especially for musicians like us. We're not studio musicians in Hollywood, so mainly we're playing marches and, you know, ballads. So this gives us something really cool to mix it up with. animated short Maker vs. Marker is going viral online, and over the past few days, Brian Sadler's been getting emails from filmmakers, including some from Hollywood. One guy was a, a visual effects supervisor in Hollywood, and he's worked on The Matrix, Polar Express, Battleship. Appropriate. And he's getting into directing, and he asked me if I could collaborate with him. Exciting times. Not that Sadler plans to give up the Seventh Fleet Band anytime soon. The Navy's in his blood. His dad served in the construction battalion for 27 years, and there's some security in it too. For now, it's steady work. Especially being a musician, sometimes you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. So, at least with the Navy, I've got a contract. I know what I'm going to be doing for the next five years or six years. And even if I, if I don't do any gigs, I'll still have a paycheck come. But the way things are looking with the budget, they may be canceling the Navy music program. I don't know yet, but, you know, they're making budget cuts. Hopefully nothing will happen. If it does, Brian Sadler might be out of a job when his contract runs out. Perhaps California will beckon. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. And you've got to check out the Maker versus Marker video. It's at theworld.org. It's by a British animator by the name of Johnny Lawrence, and it is really cool. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, signing off, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.